Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we entangle weird and wonderful science with your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special Nobel edition, we explore the 2022 Nobel Prizes for ancient genes, click chemistry, and quantum entanglement. The 2022 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine was awarded to Svante Pabo for his discoveries about the genomics of extinct hominins and human evolution. Paleontologists had previously discovered that modern humans used to live alongside another species of now extinct human, the Neanderthals, discovered from bones in the Neander Valley in Germany. Svante Pabo discovered another species of extinct humans that lived at the same time as modern humans, called the Denisovans. He went on to sequence the genomes of both species of ancient humans, and by comparing them to the genome of modern humans, he discovered that our ancestors interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, so that many modern-day humans still carry genes from these extinct peoples, which has implications for healthcare. His work has given rise to an entirely new scientific discipline, paleogenomics. Anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, first appeared in Africa about 300,000 years ago, while our closest known relatives, the Neanderthals, developed outside Africa and populated Europe and Western Asia from around 400,000 years ago until about 30,000 years ago, when they became extinct. About 70,000 years ago, groups of Homo sapiens migrated from Africa to the Middle East, and from there they spread to the rest of the world. This means that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals coexisted in large parts of Eurasia for at least tens of thousands of years. Paleogenomics is difficult because DNA breaks down over thousands of years. In 1990, Svante Pabo decided to analyse DNA from Neanderthal mitochondria, organelles in cells that contain their own DNA. The mitochondrial genome is small, contains only a fraction of the genetic information in the cell, but it is present in thousands of copies, increasing the chance of successfully sequencing the genes. Svante Pabo sequenced a region of mitochondrial DNA from a 40,000-year-old piece of bone. By comparing the results with the genes of modern-day humans and chimpanzees, he demonstrated that Neanderthals were genetically distinct. In 2010, Working with experts in population genetics and advanced sequence analyses, he used advances in technology to sequence the entire Neanderthal genome from the DNA in the nucleus of cells in ancient bones. Comparative analyses demonstrated that the most recent common ancestor of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens lived around 800,000 years ago. Comparative analyses further showed that DNA sequences from Neanderthals were more similar to sequences from present-day humans originating from Europe or Asia than to present-day humans originating from Africa. 
This means that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interbred during their many thousands of years of coexistence. In modern day humans with European or Asian descent, about 1-4% of the genome comes from Neanderthal ancestors. In 2008, a 40,000 year old fragment from a finger bone was discovered in the Denisova cave in the southern part of Siberia. The bone contained exceptionally well-preserved DNA, which Parbo's team sequenced. The results showed the Denisova DNA sequence was unique when compared to all known sequences from Neanderthals and present-day humans. Parbo had discovered a previously unknown hominin, which was given the name Denisova. Comparisons with sequence from current-day humans from different parts of the world show that interbreeding had also occurred between Denisova and Homo sapiens. This relationship was first seen in populations in Melanesia and other parts of Southeast Asia, where individuals have inherited up to 6% Denisova DNA. At the time when our Homo sapiens ancestors migrated out of Africa, at least two extinct hominin populations inhabited Eurasia. Neanderthals lived in western Eurasia, whereas Denisovans populated the eastern parts of the continent. During the expansion of Homo sapiens outside Africa and their migration east, they not only encountered and interbred with Neanderthals, but also with Denisovans. There were now extinct ancient species of other types of human living at the same time as Homo sapiens in Africa, but were so far unable to sequence their genomes, because in tropical climates, ancient DNA degrades more quickly. Thanks to Svante Parbo's discoveries, we now understand that ancient gene sequences from our extinct relatives influence the physiology of present-day humans. For example, the Denisovan version of the gene EPAS1 has been inherited by modern people in Tibet, where it confers an advantage for survival at high altitude. Neanderthal genes inherited by modern humans affect our immune response to different types of infections, which is why they're still in the population. The 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Barry Sharpless, Morton Meldol, and Carolyn Bertozzi for a new type of chemical engineering or functional chemistry called click chemistry. Click chemistry is where molecular building blocks snap together quickly and efficiently. The work is now being developed to diagnose and treat cancer. This is a second Nobel Prize for Barry Sharpless. He shared his first one in 2001 for the development of catalytic asymmetric synthesis, a way to make only left-handed or only right-handed molecules on demand. In 2001, Barry Sharpless coined the concept of click chemistry. In a paper, he argued that by copying nature to make new drugs, scientists were making things more difficult for themselves than if they designed something that worked the same way, but was built from molecular building blocks that could be assembled more quickly and easily in the lab. Sharpless used a powerful antibiotic, meropenem, as an example. It took six years of chemical development work to find a way of producing the molecule on a large scale. What's easily grown in nature can be very difficult for chemists to synthesise. Barry Sharpless encouraged his colleagues to start with smaller molecules that already had complete carbon frames. 
these simple molecules could then be linked together using bridges of nitrogen atoms or oxygen atoms, which are easier to control. If chemists choose simple reactions where there's a strong intrinsic drive for the molecules to bond together, they avoid many of the side reactions with a minimal loss of material. Combining simple chemical building blocks makes it possible to create an almost endless variety of molecules. Morton Meldal and Barry Sharpless, independently of each other, discovered what has become the crown jewel of click chemistry, the copper-catalyzed azide-alkyne cycloaddition. Azides and alkynes react very efficiently when copper ions are added. If chemists want to link two different molecules, they can now, relatively easily, introduce an azide in one molecule and an alkyne in the other. They then snap the molecules together with the help of some copper ions. This reaction has become popular in research laboratories and in industrial development. If a manufacturer adds a clickable azide to a plastic or fibre, changing the material at a later stage is straightforward. It's possible to click in substances that conduct electricity, capture sunlight, are antibacterial, protect from ultraviolet radiation, or have some other desirable properties. Softeners can be clicked into plastics, so they don't leak out later. Click chemistry is used to produce and optimise substances that can potentially become new drugs. Carolyn Bertozzi wanted to study glycans. Glycans are complex carbohydrates that are built from various types of sugar and often sit on the surface of proteins and cells. They play an important role in processes such as when viruses infect cells or when the immune system is activated. In the 1990s, she started working on how to design molecular handles holding fluorescent molecules that could attach to glycans in cells and light up when they connected to them without harming the cell. This handle molecule had to be insensitive to absolutely everything apart from the molecules she was going to link to the handle, or it would be toxic and cause side effects. In 2000, she found the optimal chemical handle an azide. Her system was used by many people to map cells. In 2003, Carolyn Bertozzi coined the term bioorthogonal chemistry for any kind of chemical reaction that could occur within a living system without interfering with it or harming it. Carolyn Bertozzi had read of Morton Meldal's and Barry Sharpless's new click chemistry, so she knew that her handle, the azide, can rapidly click into an alkyne as long as there are available copper ions. The problem was that copper is toxic to living things. Deep in the chemical literature, she found that back in 1961 it had been shown that azides and alkynes can react in a very energetic manner without any copper if the alkyne is forced into a ring-shaped chemical structure. The strain creates so much energy that the reaction runs smoothly. The reaction worked well when she tested it in cells. In 2004, she published her copper-free click reaction called the strain-promoted alkyne azide cycloaddition and then demonstrated that it can be used to track glycans. Her studies have led to the insight that some glycans appear to protect tumours from the body's immune system as they make the immune cells shut down. To block this protective mechanism, Bertozzi and her colleagues have created a new type of biological pharmaceutical. 
They've joined a glycan-specific antibody to enzymes that break down the glycans on the surface of the tumour cells. This pharmaceutical is now being tested in clinical trials on people with advanced cancer. Many researchers have also started to develop clickable antibodies that target a range of tumours. Once the antibody is attached to the tumour, a second molecule that clicks to the antibody is injected. For example, this could be a radioisotope that could be used to track tumours using a PET scanner, or that can aim a lethal dose of radiation at the cancer cells. Click chemistry is a way of connecting molecules together like toy building blocks to make precise materials that can be easily manufactured or to make biochemical tools that don't hurt living systems and medicines with fewer side effects. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Nobel Prize for Physics 2022 was awarded to Elaine Aspect, John Clauser and Anton Zeilinger for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. What happens to one particle in an entangled pair determines what happens to the other, even if they're really too far apart to affect each other. Albert Einstein talked disparagingly of spooky action at a distance, but Erwin Schrödinger said it was quantum mechanics' most important trait. These discoveries have brought us closer to understanding the nature of reality and helped lay the foundations for quantum technologies such as quantum computers, quantum networks and secure quantum encrypted communication. Hidden variable theory says that instructions from a lower hidden level of reality tell us which result we should see in an experiment. A simple hidden variable theory says that all the properties of everything in the universe are already determined. And when you make an observation, you just find out what's there. Quantum mechanics says some things have indeterminate qualities until you measure them. The idea that the world is a computer simulation is a hidden variable theory, that there's a deeper layer of reality than what we can see. The world of mysticism is a hidden variable theory, where underneath our universe is a hidden supernatural reality, where what can happen is ruled by the laws of magic and the choices of powerful entities. If you can disprove hidden variable theories, then you can exclude simulation theory, supernaturalism, but also that things have real properties when you're not looking at them, before they interact with other things. If we think about balls instead of particles, we can imagine an experiment in which a black ball is sent in one direction and a white ball in the opposite direction. An observer who catches a ball and sees that it's white can immediately say that the ball that travelled in the other direction is black. The difference in quantum mechanics is that its equivalents to the balls have no determined states until they're measured. It's as if both balls are sort of grey, right up until someone looks at one of them. Then it can randomly take either all of the black the pair of balls has access to, or can show itself to be white. The other ball immediately turns the opposite colour. But how is it possible to know that the balls did not each have a set colour at the beginning? Even if they appeared grey to our experiments, Perhaps they had a hidden label inside saying which colour they should turn when someone looks at them. This is the hidden variable theory of realism. It matters 
if the balls are not exactly black or white before they're measured because they behave differently when the colour is indeterminate. And you can use that indeterminate behaviour to make technology do new things. Bell's inequalities show that it's possible to design experiments that can differentiate between these cases and rule hidden variable theories in or out. In the 1960s, John Stuart Bell developed his inequality that if there are hidden variables, the correlation between the results of a large number of measurements will never exceed a certain value. Quantum mechanics predicted that Bell's inequality would be broken, and the measurements would exceed Bell's value. So you could test whether the hidden variable theory was the right interpretation of the meaning of quantum entanglement by designing an experiment that could measure if Bell's inequality is violated or if it matches Bell's prediction. John Clauser developed John Bell's ideas, leading to a practical experiment. John Clauser used calcium atoms that could emit entangled photons after he'd illuminated them with a special light. He set up a filter on either side to measure the photon's polarisation. After a series of measurements, he was able to show that they violated a Bell inequality. Some loopholes remained after John Clauser's experiment. Elaine Aspect developed the setup, using it in a way that closed an important loophole by using a new way of exciting the atoms so they emitted entangled photons at a higher rate. He could also switch between different settings so the system would not contain any advanced information that could affect the results. Anton Zeilinger later conducted more tests of Bell inequalities. He created entangled pairs of photons by shining a laser on a special crystal and used random numbers to shift between measurement settings. One experiment used signals from distant galaxies to control the filters and ensure the signals couldn't affect each other. Entangled quantum states hold the potential for new ways of storing, transferring and processing information. If the particles in an entangled pair travel in opposite directions and one of them then meets a third particle in such a way that they become entangled, then they enter a new shared state. The third particle loses its identity, but its original properties have now been transferred to the solar particle from the original pair that it never encountered. This way, of transferring an unknown quantum state from one particle to another is called quantum teleportation. Entirely unknown quantum properties can be transferred using quantum teleportation and appear intact in another particle, but at the price of them being destroyed in the original particle. If Captain Kirk were to travel through this kind of teleporter, it would mean that the original Kirk was destroyed but an exact duplicate was reconstructed at the other end. It's a brutal way to travel. This may explain why in Star Trek, Dr. McCoy refused to travel by transporter and always preferred the shuttle. This type of quantum teleportation experiment with photons was first conducted in 1997 by Anton Zeilinger and his colleagues. The next step was to use two pairs of entangled particles. If one particle from each pair are brought together in a particular way, the undisturbed particles in each pair can become entangled despite never having been in contact with each other. This entanglement swapping 
was first demonstrated in 1998 by Anton Zeilinger's research group. Entangled pairs of photons, particles of light, can be sent in opposite directions through optical fibres and function as signals in a quantum network. Entanglement between two pairs makes it possible to extend the distances between the nodes in such a network. There's a limit to the distance that photons can be sent through an optical fibre before they're absorbed or lose their properties. Entanglement swapping means it's possible to send the original state further, thereby transferring it over longer distances than had otherwise been possible. The mathematics of quantum mechanics are quite complex, but we don't need to consider the details of the calculations. Our interest is in the results that quantum mechanics gives. This high-speed computer simplifies the task of carrying out the calculations. The equation is punched onto cards and fed into the computer together with instructions on how to solve it. The computer then rapidly solves a problem that is tedious if done by hand. When the calculations are completed, the machine types out the energy values. And here's Chris Stewart from the 2002 20 kilobit per second archives with some quantum poetry from the US newspaper columnist Cecil Adams. Schrodinger Erwin, professor of physics, most daring equations confounded his critics. Not bad, eh? Don't worry. This part of the verse starts off pretty good, but it gets a lot worse. Wynne saw that the theory that Newton invented by Einstein's discoveries had been badly dented. What now, wailed his colleagues, said Erwin, don't panic. No grease monkey eye, but a quantum mechanic. Consider electrons. Now these teeny articles are sometimes like waves, then sometimes like particles. If that's not confusing, the nuclear dance of electrons and such like is governed by chance. No sweat, though. My theory permits us to judge where some of them is and the rest of them was. Not everyone bought this. It threatened to wreck the comforting linkage of cause and effect. Even Einstein had doubts and Schrodinger tried to tell him what quantum mechanics implied. Said Wynne to Al, brother, suppose we've a cat and inside a tube we have put the cat at. Along with a solitaire deck and some fritos, a bottle of nitrine, a couple of mosquitoes, or something else rhyming, and oh, if you've got them, one vile prussic acid, one decaying autumn, or atom, whatever. But when it emits, a trigger device blasts the vial to bits, which snuffs our poor kitty. The odds of this crime are 50 to 50 per hour each time. The cylinder's sealed, the hour's passed away. Is our pussy still purring, or pushing up daisies? Now you'd say that the cat either lives or it don't, but quantum mechanics is stubborn and won't. Statistically speaking, the cat, goes the joke, is half a cat breathing and a half a cat croaked. To some this may seem a ridiculous split, but quantum mechanics must answer, tough shit. We may not know much, but one thing's for sure. There's things in the cosmos that we cannot know. Shine light on electrons, you'll cause them to swerve. The act of observing disturbs the observed, which ruins your test. But then if there's no testing to see if a particle's moving or resting, why try to conjecture? Pure useless endeavour. We know probability. Certainty, never. 
The effect of this notion I very much fear. Twill make doubtful all things that were formerly clear. Till soon the cat doctors will say in reports, we've just flipped a coin and we've learned he's a corpse. So saith her Irwin, quoth Albert, you're nuts. God doesn't play dice with the universe, parts, I'll prove it, he said. And the Lord knows he tried in vain until finally he more or less died. When spoke at the funeral, listen, dear friends, sweet Al was my buddy, I must make amends. Though he doubted my theory, I'll say this of this saint. Ten to one, he's in heaven, but five bucks says he ain't. That was Chris Stewart speaking the words of Cecil Adams, a glimpse at the mercifully short-lived movement known as quantum literature. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio, and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show if you enjoyed the show you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? 
Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.